The following message is made available for you by Emanuel Baptist Church in Mora, Minnesota. For more information, visit us online at www.emanuelmora.com. This is what uh, the Holy Spirit has written uh, in His Word. Time went by until 20 years had passed since the ark had been taken to Kiriath Jerim. Then the whole house of Israel longed to be with the Lord. Samuel told them, If you are returning to the Lord with all of your heart, Get rid of the foreign gods and ashtrafts that are among you. Set your hearts on the Lord and worship only Him. Then He will rescue you from the Philistines. So the Israelites removed the balls and ashtrafts and all, only men only worship the Lord. Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord on your behalf. When they gathered at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out in the Lord's presence. They fasted on that day, and they confessed, We have sinned against the Lord, and Samuel judged the Israelites at Mizpah. When the Philistines heard that the Israelites had gathered at Mizpah, their rulers marched up toward Israel. When the Israelites heard about it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. The Israelites said to Samuel, Don't stop crying out to the Lord our God for us, so that he will save us uh, from the Philistines. Then Samuel took a young man and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on behalf of Israel, and the Lord answered him. Samuel was offered the burnt offering as the Philistines approached to fight against Israel. The Lord thundered loudly against the Philistines that day and threw them into such confusion that they were defeated by Israel. Then the men of Israel charged out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, striking them down all the way to place to a place below Bethar. Afterwards, Samuel took a stone and set it upright between Mizpah and Shem. He named it Ebenezer, explaining, The Lord has helped us to this point. So the Philistines were subdued and did not invade Israel's territory again. The Lord's hand was against the Philistines all of Samuel's life. The cities of Ephraim and Gath, which they had taken from Israel, were restored. Israel even rescued their surrounding territories from Philistine control. There was also peace between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel throughout his life. Every year he would go on a circuit to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and would judge Israel at all those locations. Then he returned to Ramah because his home was there. He judged Israel there and built an altar to the Lord there. Let's pray. Father, uh, Lord, what we don't know, would you uh, impart to us, Lord, what we are not, would you make us, and would you do it all through the ministry of your word this morning, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. I was 10 years old when I had my one and only physical fight. It was a 10-second rumble on the playground. I don't remember the circumstances, but I certainly remember Elliot, who was actually my friend at the time, and, and even afterwards, for whatever reason, he was really angry with me. And he challenged me to a fight at recess. And I didn't want to fight him. I, I don't want to get hurt. I don't want him to get hurt. Most of all, I didn't want to get in trouble. And I certainly didn't want to fight him because I, I, I didn't know how to fight. The only thing that I knew to do was 
what I saw on professional wrestling. And so as I tried avoiding this fight, the fight came to me. And so I did the only thing that I knew to do. I body slammed that kid straight up on the playground there. It was over in about 10 seconds. I won my only physical fight. Now I may not have had a physical fight since then, hopefully never will again, but I have had my share of battles over my over the years. I have fights against temptations. I've had battles over sinful inclinations. I've had spiritual battles. I've had mental and emotional struggles. I've had relational battles. I've had circumstantial battles. And so much more that I know are going to come. And I know are going to continue until that day that I am with Jesus in glory. And I know that I am not alone. Every single one of us has, or maybe is right now, somewhere in a struggle, some sort of turbulence. Some of you are struggling with unimaginable things, some things that may be known to others, and maybe you are quietly and silently struggling with something and not even the soul knows about it except for the Lord our God. And our text this morning tells us and brings us back to Israel in about the year 1050 BC. However, this is a completely different Israel than we saw just a few chapters ago. Verse 2 tells us that 20 years have passed now. 20 years have passed since their pride had led them to presumption, to uh, believe, believing that the ark was uh, nothing more than uh, a good launch arm for them. It's been 20 years since the Lord humbled them on the battlefield, leading victory to the Philistines, killing 30,000 Israelite soldiers and the ark being taken away in order to force them to see the supremacy of God. It had been 20 years since the, the Philistines had brought the ark into their territory and received all of the, the, the flags and all of the infirmities that they got from the Lord to know his supremacy. It had been 20 years since the ark was returned to the Israelites. But in those 20 years, the, the Lord had regained the central place of Israel within their heart. Uh, they, they lived and they worked in these 20 years. They went about their business, but they were spiritually dry. And now here we are 20 years later, and Israel has become thirsty for the Lord. Verse 2 tells us that the whole house of Israel longed for the Lord. This hadn't happened in a very long time. And now, for the first time in a few chapters, this guy named Samuel shows up. We haven't seen him. We didn't know where he was. And you might think that as the spiritual leader of Israel, he might, he might stand up and he might give God a standing ovation and, and be uh, just really pumped that revival is breaking out. Let's celebrate this. And that would be the posture of many pastors today. They would see uh, that this is going on within the congregation, maybe in the, the town, and they think, man, maybe we're doing something right. We've got small groups. We've got people volunteering. Uh, there's a lot of really exciting stuff happening. But Samuel's response, his first response is not to celebrate. Rather, he prepares them 
to fight. He doesn't prepare them to fight to buy them some kid on the paper. He prepares them to spiritually fight for their life. And through the, this passage, we learn that it is, it is good to celebrate God when God does great things. But it's also to remember that this world is, this world is not our home. And we need to learn how to fight the good fight of faith. So let's look at briefly at four ways that this text teaches us how to fight. And the first is, is that we need to fight with repentance. Means to fight with repentance. I was leading a personal evangelism class at, at uh, a church that I was involved with uh, back in my early twenties, uh, and one of the pastors on staff called me aside, and he said to me, "I'll never something I'll never forget." He says, oh, "Mike, you you don't need to tell people that they're sinners." You don't need to tell people that they have sin. You don't need to tell them about repentance. They already know these things. Rather, you just need to tell them about the love of God and their need to receive Him through faith. And though I was somewhat young and naive, I understood and still hold the fact that you cannot possibly know the love of God without knowing the depths of your sin. You cannot know the depths of His grace until you see the depths of your depravity. And scripture is clear that you cannot receive the grace and mercy of God without both faith and repentance. They're two sides of the same coin. And Samuel recognized this in verse 2. Again, it says that the whole house of Israel longs for the Lord. And he, he points out that this longing, this desire for God is insufficient without repentance. Now, we don't know what happened during those 20 years between verses 1 and 2 of chapter 7. But one thing that we can be certain of is that God was just one God among many gods that they were serving. There were false gods and there were foreign idols that were, they were still captivated with. And so Samuel gives them a conditional statement. Notice what he says here in verse 3. He says, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, Then get rid of the foreign gods and the asterisks that are among you. Set your hearts on the Lord and worship only Him. Then He will rescue you from the Philistines. So we tend to think that repentance is a feeling. That it is a feeling of, of, uh, of shame or feeling bad about what we've done and maybe we might add a little bit of penance in there. Uh, maybe we might do something ourselves to atone for our own sin. But that's not biblical repentance. In Samuel, uh, 1 Samuel 7 verse 3, Samuel lays out to the Israelites and to us what repentance truly is. And repentance is two types of terms. It is one, a turning from your sin, and it is then a turning to God. It is agreeing with God that what you've done is sinful in His sight, but then go to Him as the only source of mercy and forgiveness that we can, that we can get. And we so uh, easily forget the Lord our God and let the Israelites place our trust in lesser things. We must get rid of them. You know, getting rid of something means? It means getting rid of it. 
means not putting it in a crawl space or putting it in a closet and, and thinking that one day you'll never touch it again, but maybe you just might want to keep it around. Throw them out, burn them. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, he says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Now he's, he's using hyperbole here. He's not saying actually cut off your hand. It's whatever's causing you to stumble, get rid of it. For it's better for you to lose one part, one of the parts of your body, than for your whole body to go to hell. This may mean that you are no longer going to spend time with those people that are driving you to gamble and drink. This may mean that some of you may need to put accountability software on your computer or get rid of the computer completely or your smartphone. This may mean that you need to find a different job because you can no longer compromise your faith with the standards and the, the mission of the company that you are working for. This may mean that you need to cancel some subscriptions. This may mean that you may need to have some really difficult conversations and maybe even go into counseling or therapy. This may mean that you caught up your credit cards. I don't know what you're struggling with, but half of repentance is getting rid of those things, turning from those things that are keeping us from God. The other part of repentance is turning to God. Notice again verse 3. It says, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, get rid of the foreign gods and the asterisks that are among you, and set your hearts on the Lord and worship only Him. You may think that food can comfort you. Set your heart on the Lord. You may think that having money or spending money will give you status. Set your heart on the Lord's approval only. You may think that having a significant other is what gives you significance. Set your gaze on the Lord who alone puts value on who you are. You may think that being a social advocate gives you purpose and meaning. Set your heart on the Lord who alone frees the captives and the oppressed. If you want to learn how to fight spiritually, then you must repent. Verses 3 through 4 again. Samuel told them, If you are returning to the Lord with all of your heart, get rid of the foreign gods and the asterisks that are among you. Set your hearts on the Lord and worship only Him. Then he will rescue you from the Philistines. And then we see the, uh, the response here that the Israelites removed the Baals and the Asherahs and only worshipped the Lord. Repentance gets you out of the driver's seat. Fighting through with repentance means acknowledging your insufficiency and receiving the all sufficient ability of God. You want to fight? Then get out of the way of everything. And start having a lifestyle of repentance. Second, we fight with prayer. 
into fight with prayer. Uh, if you uh, want to fight these struggles and, and these temptations that we go through on a daily basis, we can't do it through conventional means. We're not creative enough, we're not powerful enough uh, to do those sorts of things. Instead, if we want to fight, we need to fight on our knees. We need to be people of prayer, verses 5 and 6. Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord on your behalf. When they gathered at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out in the Lord's presence. They fasted that day, and there they confessed, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the Israelites at Mizpah. So, how does Samuel, this giant in the faith, fight spiritual warfare? He prays. He prays. We don't know the full context of the prayer. Obviously, there was a lament part of it because they're confessing their sin and they're returning to the Lord in this. And Israel is in now the process of returning to the Lord. They're approving their repentance by getting rid of these uh, these Baals and the Ashtoreths, and they're seeking him earnestly through the intercessory prayer of, of Samuel. And this is a model of what it looks like to come back to God. But spiritual warfare doesn't end there. Those of us who have been in the battle before know that when we, when we do these things, the enemy is going to be right there to challenge us. Those things that we got rid of are going to be knocking on the door very quickly for us to recapitulate into our past. Look at verse 7. When the Philistines heard that the Israelites had gathered at Mizpah, their rulers marched up toward Israel. When the Israelites heard about it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. Now, you can picture how vulnerable the Israelites are there. The whole country, the whole nation is there at Mizpah, praying, seeking the Lord. The Philistines hear about this, and they see this as an opportunity. The whole country is right there. We want to wipe out Israel. Now is our time to do it. And so as Samuel is praying, they can hear the footsteps of the soldiers in the distance and the shouts of an invading army, and it is absolutely terrifying to them. Their old enemy is coming to them in their weakness to snuff them out. You know, old temptations and struggles and sins, they don't, they don't die very easily. They don't go into the night quietly. They're ready for a resurrection at a moment's notice. And as we think about the events of the, the last few chapters, it appears that Israel now has learned how to fight. Remember a couple chapters ago, uh, they thought that fighting meant manipulating God. Grabbing the ark and taking that out to the battlefield, that's our good luck charm. We're going to win because we bring out this, this box, and they're absolutely humiliated. And here now they're acknowledging their insufficiency. Against such things, and they turn to the sufficiency of the Lord. Look at verse 8. The Israelites said to Samuel, Don't stop crying out to the Lord our God, 
for us so that he will save us from the Philistines. Now, this is a good lesson for any of us when the when the battle lines are, are drawn. The demonic forces of this world are too powerful for you. The pull of the culture to compromise and bend the knee to the ideologues of our day is too clever for us to stand against on our own. The agenda is to erode your stamina so that one day you can say, well, you know, I, there's no use fighting this anymore, I'm just going to get in. The personal demons that we have are too much for our, our own selves to handle. You can't save your marriage on your own. You can't deliver yourself from a pornography addiction. You can't patch up that relationship by your cleverness. Uh, you don't have the strength to cool off your anger when that comes. Instead, we have to listen to the voice of our forefathers from 3,000 years ago. Don't stop praying to the Lord so that he will save us. There's a great song by, by Phil Wickham that I thought was new, but I'm usually 30 minutes late to the party, uh, called The Battle Laws. And I think the words are very poignant in it. It says, so when I fight, I'll fight on my knees. With my hands lifted high, oh God, the battle belongs to you. And every fear I lay at your feet, I'll sing through the night, oh God, the battle belongs to you. We want to fight, we need to fight through prayer. Uh, third, if you want to fight, we need to fight the cross in you. We need to fight the cross in you. Uh, this entire vignette is a case study on uh, those who want to take God seriously. If you take God seriously, you will see the seriousness of your sin and your repentance. If you God, take God seriously, you will seek him in prayer uh, as the only sufficient help in times of trouble. But none of these things mean anything unless our sin is dealt with. Sin is so serious that God exacts the eternal death penalty on us, on anyone who sins. Whether they're a serial killer or the only thing they've ever done is told a little white lie. James chapter 2 verse 10 tells us that whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles in one point is guilty of it all. Ezekiel 18 uh, verse 20, the person that sins, the soul that sins shall die. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. But out of his love, God designed a way in which justice can be accomplished and the guilty go free. Imagine that you're in a court and say, yeah, you're, you're guilty of this, but go ahead and go free. In the Old Testament, God instructed the Israelites to uh, annually take a, a lamb without blemish and, and sacrifice it um, to atone for their sins. The sins of the people would be transferred on to this lamb, this lamb of pay his life for the sins of the people. Now in verse 9, the Philistines are closing in on them. 
If repented, they prayed, and now Samuel knows that, hey, we need forgiveness from this God. So then Samuel returned, took a young man and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on behalf of Israel, and the Lord answered him. And you may, you may think, wow, that's, that's really nice, but how come you don't see any lambs being sacrificed today? I mean, did, I don't know, did Peter get their hands in religious liberty now too? And that's not what's happening. Here we see that these sacrifices here are pointing towards something greater. This sacrifice is pointing to the cross of Christ. It's on the cross that uh, Jesus was the finality of the sacrificial system. On the cross, Jesus bore the weight of every sin we've ever thought, said, and done in our entire lives. And he bore all of our suffering. He bore all of our sickness. On the cross, Jesus took the full brunt of the justice of God. It was on the cross that Jesus bore the full wrath of God on our behalf. It was on the cross that he took all of our evil, and now through faith, all of his righteousness and all of his goodness is given to us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, it says, He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. It was on the cross that Jesus went to battle for you. And for everything that you struggle with, and everything that you've done, and everything that you've said, and everything that is going to happen in the future, he went to battle and proved his victory by raising three days, rising three days from the dead. You know, I grew up as a Roman Catholic, and every week I went to Mass, there was a, there was a big cross up in front, but there's usually a hard image of a man hanging there. There's a reason why Protestant churches like ours have an empty cross. It's because Jesus has already won the war. He is no longer suffering for our sins. We serve a God who left the cross empty and left the tomb empty. He is victorious over all of our sins and all of our fears. He is victorious over our past. He is victorious over our present. And he is victorious already over our future. He is Lord of all, as we saw just a few minutes ago. And it shows in verse 10. So Samuel was offering the burnt offering as the Philistines approached to fight against Israel. The Lord thundered against the Philistines that day and, and threw them into such confusion that they were defeated by Israel. So what happened now when Israel realized that they don't have to manipulate God, they don't have to bring him out as some sort of a lucky rabbit's foot, and all they had to do was stand there? God fought for them. God fought for them. And we have seen that in the lives of so many in our church, in our community, of God going to battle for people. And his weapon, in this case, 
It was a little play on the god of Baal, who was the, uh, the Canaanite god of, of weather, basically, rain and, and, and thunder and all that. Her god thunders from the heavens, and <laughs> these Philistines, they flee for their life. This is not uncommon in the Bible. Dan spread a few minutes ago of what Moses said to the Israelites. He says, don't be afraid. Stand firm and see the Lord's salvation that he will accomplish for you today. For the uh, Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You must only be quiet. Let the Lord be God. What would happen if in our sins and our struggles and our temptations, there are issues we simply repented, prayed, and let God be God? For the Israelites, it meant that they could chase their enemies away. Verse 11. The men of Israel charged on Mizpah, pursued the Philistines, stretching them down all the way to a place below that car. So do you want to fight? Maybe that means putting down your weapons, and putting up your hands, and letting God do only what God can do. And fourth, we fight with remembrance. We fight with remembrance. Whenever something important happens in our lives, we have some kind of souvenir for it. Maybe you have a t-shirt from the time in Mexico, maybe you have a, a uh, keychain from the Badlands, maybe, maybe it's just a photo book. You look back and remember these things. These are important because we're really not the best at remembering things. And as the days draw on and we get older, we start really feeling that. And so these little mementos we need in order to jog our memories, to remember those times. The Lord had just defeated the Philistines on behalf of Israel. And this was a momentous occasion. 20 years ago, Israel was God's enemy, and now they're back together again. They have that relationship once more. And lest they forget what happened and return to these foreign gods and idols, verse 12 tells us that Samuel took a stone and set it upright between Mizpah and Shem. He named it Ebenezer, explaining, the Lord has helped us up to this point. You know, when I think about this, I think about um, going over to the uh, football field for the Mormon Mustangs. As soon as you walk into that entrance, uh, you can see this large rock that says that this is where God has to be. And it is meant to remember Carl Dice and Clark Birdlock and what they did for the Mormon football program and the Mormon community. And uh, it's for generations to notice it. And here Samuel is building a rock that's not just some kind of pebble. It's this huge memorial rock that people can look on it in the future and remember God's faithfulness, remember his goodness to his people. And it's no coincidence that Samuel names it Ebenezer. Ebenezer should not be thought of as, as some grumpy old British guy that is stingy with his money and finally comes to his senses at Christmas time. Um, but we should think about it as it really means. Ebenezer literally means stone or rock of hell. And this is very poignant because it was at the location of Ebenezer that Israel 
have their embarrassing loss. Bringing up the ark, losing 40, 30, 40,000 soldiers, losing the ark, losing the high priest's two sons, and now here we are, and finally know what it means to experience the Lord's help. And notice it's not assuming. Thus far, the Lord has helped us. He doesn't owe it to us, but we need to remember his faithfulness for when the next battle comes. It is when we remember what he has done in the past that will trigger us to look to him in the future when that time comes. Now, I have thought about bringing in a bunch of little rocks and putting them all on your seats so that when you left your day, you have something to remember this passage by. But our Ebenezer isn't a rock. Our Ebenezer is a cross. It's the cross that we went to. And we remember God's great love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Our Ebenezer is the Lord's Supper. That when we take together, we do this in remembrance of Him. It is in our baptism in which we proclaim to the world that Christ is Lord. It is in these things that we look to and we sing, Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I come. And I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when I was a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. He, to rescue me from danger, bought me with his precious blood. I'll never forget that day of recess when I bought my friend Elliot. I had tried to avoid it, but eventually the night found me. We can try and try and try again to avoid all things in life that I've struggled with. To go to battle against but as long as we are in this world, trouble will find us. But at the cross, there's victory. And so we fight. Not with a body slam, but with repentance and prayer and remembrance of the grace and the mercy that we have received by the suffering and the raising of our all-sufficient Savior, Jesus. Let's pray.